seeing this growing disdain that was expressed by my colleagues toward kind of the people I grew up with and also the religion of my of my childhood, a kind of disdain for anyone who has backwards and, and superstitious views. I think it's always extremely dangerous when the elite of a society sees themselves as fundamentally in opposition to sort of the ordinary people. You know, I think that that creates a genuinely deeply dangerous political moment. Hello and welcome to Confessions. This is the podcast where we talk to interesting, clever, well-known people and try and drill down into their core beliefs and try and understand a bit about what makes them tick. And I'm delighted to have with me today Professor Patrick Deneen, who may well be known to you as the author of Why Liberalism Failed, which was out a couple of years ago now and uh, is a big deal book and uh, has made a big difference and lots of responses to it. And we'll be talking about that. Welcome. Welcome to you. You're Professor of Politics at Notre Dame, is that right? That's right. right. That's correct. So the way this works, um, Patrick, is we... The first thing we do is we try and situate a bit of your background story and where you come from and how you grew up and some of the values that are floating around in the ether at that time. So could you say something a little bit about the home in which you grew up? Sure, yeah. I grew up in uh, outside of Hartford, Connecticut, a town called Windsor, Connecticut, which is one of these classic New England towns. If you've ever watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, with Jimmy Stewart, that's a lot like the town oh, wow, I grew okay. up in. A town where it was uh, downtown, uh, very well-defined sort of streets with front porches. And, uh, and you know, sometimes I think there are two kinds of people in the world, the people who love where they grew up and the people who hate where they grew up. And I, I loved where I grew up. And uh, uh, I think as I developed intellectually, what I discovered was that there was a kind of philosophy that helped me to understand why I loved where I grew up. And the, and the philosopher that helped me understand this the best was Alexis de Tocqueville, uh-huh. who actually wrote quite admiringly of New England towns, uh, both for their sort of geographic layout and for the sort of spirit of the places. And uh, uh, it was the kind of civic life, the sense of um, rootedness, of having a tradition of being um, in a place. Uh, all of these aspects uh, of the place where I grew up really informed, uh, ultimately, kind of how I developed intellectually. So, Were uh, your mum and dad intellectuals? No, my, my mother was a teacher, um, uh, but I, I really credit them with just uh, having scattered books all through the house. And so as a kid growing up, uh, I was curious enough to just pick them up, and I think, uh, I think it was just enough to be in a house that loved books. And what, did, you, did you want to do something different when you were a kid, or were you, or were you always this sort of book, bookish type? I was, I guess, I was a little bookish uh, when all the other kids would be outside playing. I, I would sometimes be in, inside, and my parents would kick me out. But uh, I, when I went to university, I didn't have much of an idea what I wanted to do. And at some point, I thought, um, What did you do? What was your, what was your major? I majored in English literature. Uh-huh. Uh, I thought I would be a lawyer. Like the, it was a little bit of the family trade. I had a lot of cousins and an uncle who were lawyers. But uh, I had this one professor who I adored, and I told him I was going to think about going to law school. And he told me, no, that's, you're not going to do that. You're going to be a professor. So uh, that thought had never occurred to me. So he, he, he just told me what to do, and I just followed his orders. And was religion a part of family background? Yeah, I was uh, Catholic, raised Catholic, both, both my parents. My mom was uh, French-Canadian by uh, descent. My dad, Irish-Catholic. Um, I was an altar boy at our church. Uh, I kind of fell away from the faith, I think, like a lot of people in my generation did when, you know, when I went off to college. But it had... It had lodged itself pretty deep in my psyche. And then, you know, I, I guess I feel fortunate that uh, when I then embarked on a 
intellectual life, I discovered for the first time the Catholic intellectual tradition, which sadly had been withheld from me. So reading both, of course, the philosophical, theological giants, Augustine, Aquinas, um, as well as the literary greats. And I realized uh, that I, in my bones, I was more Catholic than I had realized. Uh, And you're now sort of like... Well, you'd be called often a Catholic thinker, wouldn't you? I think so. And I think the term I've used often, uh, have often heard used is that I'm a revert, and that might be right. <laughs> in other words, that uh, I didn't convert to Catholicism, but I had to in some ways find my way back. And like a lot of people who convert or revert, it's often through a more intellectual path. Did you go and do a PhD in uh, that sort of traditional route into academia? Yeah, so this professor I mentioned, he um, he said I should go and study with his friend Alan, which was Alan Bloom uh, of the <laughs> Closing the American <laughs> right. Mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So I went off to the University of Chicago for uh, a year and a half to study at the Committee on Social Thought, which is kind of an interdisciplinary program for a PhD. And a little way into it, I realized I, I needed a little more discipline than they were giving me, literally and figuratively. And so I actually went back and studied with the professor uh, at Rutgers who who had put me on this path in the first place. I was going to put it all on him. Uh, his name was Wilson Carey McWilliams. He passed away about eight, nine years ago. But he was um, kind of, a, I think, an unacknowledged intellectual titan in political theory. Uh, people who knew him regarded him really highly. And he was a, especially, um, I think, maybe one of the more theologically oriented and, and informed uh, political theorists of his generation. And what are you worrying about at this time? What are your sort of big political sort of? Have, have you got? Would you would you count yourself on the right, on the left, or is there is there a developing sort of political philosophy going on? Well, I guess you know I would have traditionally considered myself a man of the left. Um, growing up in um, kind of a, what was still the remnants of an Irish Catholic ghetto mentality, where the uh, you know, you were sort of put upon by the wasp elite, and uh, and you just sort of grew up with pictures of the Pope and John F. Kennedy on the wall, and that was the that was sort of our you know our main uh, American heroes, as it were. Uh, but um, you know, I think like a lot of people, what uh, especially people who are Catholic in the in the United States, what we what we found over the years is that there's not really an obvious political home uh, either on the left or the right. Uh, a lot of people were pulled to the right uh, in in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. Uh, I mean, a lot of a lot of uh, sort of old working class or or Catholic, more Catholic conservatives, what were called Reagan Democrats. They had voted Democrat and then they moved to Ronald Reagan. Um, I would I took a lot longer because I I always had a real problem with the Republican Party's embrace of sort of free market libertarian economics, what's called neoliberalism now. Um, but I was had also had a growing problem with the um, obvious kind of libertarianism of the Democratic Party when it came to sort of social issues. So I've gravitated. I would call myself more of a conservative now, but um, not necessarily aligning with either of the mainstream parties in the states. Although I may be one of the very few academics who is actually quite pleased with some of the trajectory of our politics today. In other words, where I think where we're seeing a scrambling of the parties and uh, in, in ways that might bode well for what I would prefer to see. So there's this strange thing that's happening to conservatism uh, at the moment. I mean, conservatism is becoming more diffuse a phenomenon, it seems to me. But you get this, this idea of you know, Tucker Carlson, people like that, you know, seemingly having a go at capitalism and the way it impacts the family and all this sort of stuff. And 
conservatism is, isn't what it used to be, is it? That's right. No, in fact, I would say that it's becoming in some ways more conservative, or at least there's one branch of it. And uh, Carlson has been one of the popularizers of what I think uh, it reflects uh, what have been developments intellectually and elsewhere for a number of years, uh, which were developing, as I was just saying, developing critiques of the sort of libertarian strain uh, within the sort of conservative movement, uh, especially the sort of free market strain. So uh, recently, for example, Senator Marco Rubio of the state of Florida gave a speech called, I think it was called Common Good Capitalism or Toward Common Good Capitalism, which again was an echo of this like Tucker critique of, of capital, that capitalism is only so good as it serves some other end, and that end has to be in some ways oriented toward the common good, particularly uh, formation and sustenance of the family. So I, I find these developments actually to be kind of promising. I guess when we look uh, from this side of the pond, when we looked over in America and we thought about, we thought about the right for so long, we thought about it as a sort of strange combination of Hayek, I guess, plus uh, evangelical Christianity, you know, those two things put together. But... The Hayek strain of things, that's not something that's that's particularly influential on you, is it? I would say that I have been maybe in some ways part of my reputation, such as it is, arises from having been a pretty vocal critic of the sort of Hayekian strain within conservatism. Um and uh, and arguing for for a long time that there's a there's a deep incompatibility between someone on the one hand who wants to claim to be a defender of family values of of the values of community of the of the kind of ecology you need to form uh, and sustain these kinds of values and the values that are instantiated especially through a kind of um, uninhibited uh, embrace of not just free markets but a free market mentality where everything becomes subject to the logic of the market, and which of course would include family, children, and every aspect of life gets commodified. Uh, so I've argued for a long time that uh, conservatism as an ism is in incoherent, and I think that incoherence has actually now become manifest. And that's part of where we're seeing the, the kind of wrenching, unstable political moment that we're in today. I mean, I presumably during periods like the Cold War and stuff, it was held together by it was an alliance that was held together by having this sort of like evil other, as it were, that, you know, that, that kept everybody together. But, you know, with the with the, the fall of communism as a, as a threat, there is no longer that that which serves to keep everybody this alliance together. And this alliance is sort of conservative alliances sort of splintered in a way. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I think uh, I think there was a time when people thought, well, maybe uh, the, the sort of threat of radical Islam will sort of replace the Cold War and they can sort of maintain this this old alliance. But it's proven to be uh, the really the only thing that held it together, it seems, was the was the sort of pressure, the external pressure of the Cold War. Uh, and now, yeah, we have a scene of splintering. And one of the interesting things right now, is, certainly in the conservative world, is uh, the way in which the kind there's a kind of an ascendancy of this, um, you know, as we've been saying, a kind of more critical view of, of of free market capitalism, and in many ways, an increasing attraction of the libertarians toward the the left now, uh, in a way they were once more attracted to the right. So it's it's very interesting. The maps changed, doesn't yeah, it? it? The maps has. really changed, yeah. and so that's yeah. what I mean. In a way, this is what I want to talk to you about yeah. about how we sort of redraw this map. Now, I guess one of the things that uh, you will be saying that feels odd to may well feel odd to a lot of people who listen is that actually there's a sort of um, 
liberalism, as in left liberalism, and neo-lib, what's called neoliberalism, the sort of free market, that these are really brothers in arms, and that there's a, there's a commonality here, and that they're not enemies, that they, they, they grow from the same root. And that's something that people here would find difficult to get. Yeah, so that's probably, you've just put your finger on, obviously, the most, maybe the most radical, but also the most controversial part of, uh, of the argument of my book, which is that uh, these two liberalisms are sort of flip sides of the same coin. And while they are in apparent opposition to each other, at least as a political matter, they in fact have um, really waxed together uh, the the two sides of liberalism, a kind of economic liberalism and a sort of social liberalism end up being mutually reinforcing. Um, and I think, you know, you could see how uh, you know, maybe as a matter of philosophy, but maybe even as a matter, uh, if you really began to think about this, um, not just in merely sort of partisan terms, but as as a, a sort of social historical phenomenon, the the more we become detached from, let's say, the kind of uh, forms of relationship that um, put kinds of restraints upon market thinking, you know, so family life and community life, church life, um, neighborhoods, etc., uh, where your calculus isn't just sort of self-maximization, utility maximization. So as those wane, as we become more liberated in the social sphere, uh, which you could say is part of the progressive agenda, this creates, we become much more the kind of figure who is conceived as the ideal economic actor in you know economics 101 courses, the, the sort of economic actor who's now just simply acts based upon sort of market calculus. Uh, and then vice versa, the person who wants to be free to act um, without constraints in the market sphere is going to take on more and more of the characteristics of that socially liberated individual. Could you call this Clintonism? Well, you know, it is interesting how really what happened in the 1980s, and I think here it's interesting the, the U.S. and Britain are very similar, is you saw the kind of wedding of neoliberal economics and sort With of progressive. Blair and Clinton. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then the progressive, uh, uh, the progressive project as well. Um, and now I think you're seeing a kind of reaction against this in which sort of both the left and the right are abandoning the middle, right? And this is where the the centrist parties are really collapsing all around Europe and in the United States as well. So tell me the philosophical story in which both of these two different sorts of liberalism are both, they grow out of something, some sort of common uh, history, don't they, in your, in, your, in your understanding of things? Yeah, no, that's so in many ways, uh, as I described it as a kind of social phenomenon, of course, it was also a philosophical phenomenon. Uh, so you had, uh, you know, the sort of origins, the architects of the liberal project. We would look here in England uh, to figures, you know, sort of proto-liberal like Thomas Hobbes, who begins the kind of anthropological revolution of rethinking the human person. But then the, the sort of the founder of liberalism as a philosophy, John Locke, and the the really the core uh, insight or the core revolutionary claim is to conceive of human beings in this kind of pre-historical, pre-political, pre-social, uh, almost pre-familial, uh, if you can put it that yeah, way, yeah, right? Yeah. In a kind of condition in which you're sort of just radically and autonomously whole and and alone and uh, acting. And hostile to each other. With well, Hobbes. certainly in Hobbes's account, right, acting uh, in uh, sort of a complete uh, zero-sum game world uh, with, with Locke a little bit nicer, but it ends up also being pretty insecure. Uh, but, but to conceive of human beings in their essence or their nature 
as this kind of human being and, and to describe this condition as, as what it is to be free, right? So this is a revolution in the idea of what freedom is. I mean, this is uh, – the idea of liberty is very old. It goes back uh, well into antiquity. The word itself is from Latin, libertas. It's not a new term. It's not invented by, by Locke. But it's redefined by Locke and it's redefined in such a way that liberty is now the absence of ep- external obstacles to the fulfillment of my wishes. And what, what Locke in many ways portrays is a world in which if you can have a political authority that comes into existence to protect my natural rights to act as I see fit, um, as far as I am able to do so and only up to the point where I might present a threat to you then that's a world in which we are acting free. That's, that's a liberal world. That's, that's the definition of what a liberal world is. The pro- in some ways, you could say the, the second stage of liberalism arises from a basic, both an insight of Locke and something that Locke himself doesn't explicitly address, or at least not as explicitly as he could, which is that as a matter of theory, we can be as free to act on our rights as we wish. But as a matter of fact, some of us are going to be more equipped to do so than other people. Uh, we're going to be in a position to enjoy our liberties more than others. And so I think this is where you get the kind of, let's say, more continental understanding of liberalism, which is that you need especially the state to step in, to play a more active role, not just in staying out of the way of our free actions, but in providing us the means, the opportunities, uh, the relative equality to act freely. This would be Tocqueville that you were talking about. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, this is Tocqueville's concern, but this is, you know, this is Rousseau. This is, I mean, this is how the continental uh, uh, liberal tradition develops. Frankly, it's here in England as well. I think this is part of Mill's argument in certain ways, uh, that Mill sees that uh, the, the, the abstract rights to act as we wish are not worth a terrible not worth as much or not as practicable if we're not free from sort of public opinion, if we're not free from the restraints that public opinion uh, can exercise in us. So Mill actually argues that you need to sort of default the society now to those who want to live experimentally, what he calls experiments in living, uh, to throw off the the limits of public opinion, the kind of thing that Burke would say would be the basis for a good life, Mill sees as as these sort of unjust constraints. So you're going to need maybe even government to step in to re- to reduce the sort of social pressure on us to ask act as we might wish uh, and so you get into this kind of odd paternalist liberalism that you find in in mills thinking i mean he's not just like the thinker of on liberty he's also someone who says you know you might have to you know you might have to give smart people more votes than dumb people yeah, yeah, right yeah, because yeah. Uh, you need to have the sort of progressive part of society in charge of things so you do get this paternalist Scary liberal stuff. well yeah well, <laughs> some would say stuff. that's what the european union is today exactly. right well, i, I mean, would definitely say that <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> i would definitely say that so it, so in effect you have these kind of let's say oscillations within the liberal theory itself sometimes it will sort of move toward a more lockean direction say we need less of a state so we can be more free in the economic realm uh, sometimes you're going to need more of the state because we need to be liberated from the constraints of the social realm. And I would say that's been that's been a pretty good description of our politics for the last 60, 70, you know, since the end of the 60, 70 years, since the end of the Cold War. Uh, but it's always been an oscillation in which our economic liberty and our social liberty always gain. They always gain ground, right? They don't sort of step back. 
uh, to the point now where I think we are in some ways, as I argue in my book, liberalism is, is in this crisis, not because liberalism failed to live up to itself, but precisely because it succeeded. It, 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 it yeah. achieved what it sort of set yeah, out yeah, to yeah. do. Uh, but the original, I mean, the part of the original problem, I take it, is that, and it's clearest with Hobbes, is that, uh, you know, the sort of original idea of what human beings are like is that we sort of start as very atomistic, singular, and at war with each other. But actually, and I imagine this is I'm sort of bringing the Catholic thing in a way, that's just not how it looks to me. It's like, actually, we're born into families. We're, we're, we're sort of like, you know, you're, you're incredibly close to your mother. You're not an atomistic thing. In fact, you have to learn individuality. Individuality is something that, that grows out of some sense of community. And Lobbs just had his anthropology completely wrong. That's not what human beings are originally like at all. Yeah, so in fact... Um one of the thing, one of the arguments I make in the book, and I've been making subsequent to the book, is that the remarkable aspect of liberalism is that it purports to be this description of how we are by nature, but in fact requires this sort of massive architecture, and in fact the creation of what we think of as the modern liberal state, which is hardly a small receding state, right? It's a massive apparatus as well as the massive apparatus of a globalized economic order, right? which also requires a lot of activity to create and a lot of effort to create this global liberal neoliberal uh, economic order. In other, in other words, this massive architecture that has to be built as both the state, the market, and all of the intermediate social institutions reshaped and reformed according to the liberal philosophy that only when you create this massive architecture can you actually create the individual that is supposed to exist by nature, right? <laughs> it's the result of a massive sort it's of contrivance. Backwards. Yeah, it is. And so, but the whole time there's this kind of sleight of hand where we're led to believe now we're just existing as we were by nature, when in fact this is a massive sort of structure that has created us in this way. Uh, and uh, again, this is one of the areas where my discipline, political science, social sciences, the social sciences um, are actually quite good at showing the ways that we have achieved the condition of being non-relational creatures. I mean, this is really one of the striking hallmarks of sort of contemporary social studies is how individualistic we have become. And it's not just like a, a, a sort of haphazard thing. We have become more individualistic in every measure, family, familial, uh, whether or not we have children, whether or not we have siblings, whether or not uh, we're going to get married, whether or not you're going to be a member of a church, whether or not you'll join an organization, whether you'll feel you're a member of a community, whether you'll have this a certain West number. This is we're talking about really, isn't it? Yes, it's, it is. This yeah, is just yeah. the West, really. right? Whether yeah. you have um, more than one good friend. Right? Yeah. This, all of these measures, what you've seen is a developing uh, form of individuation or individualism. It didn't just happen yesterday or three days ago. It was over the course of several generations that all of these, that we see this this creation of this creature that, you know, in many ways you could say sort of our children's generation, this is who they are. This is the world they're inhabiting today. It's not just because they got cell phones. All these things were already sort of un underway, well underway by the time, uh, you know, they were all on YouTube or whatever the, the, the app is today. So we became, we were created into these or made into these creatures. Uh, and so the idea or conceit that this is simply 
you know, what we are by nature, I think is completely, uh, you know, sort of a, a, a complete misdescription of what in fact had to take place. But, when, but I mean, my, you know, to put it so bluntly, but, you know, once we've been separated out from each other, we become afraid of each other. And, and the idea that our sort of relationships either have to be contractually related, you know, everything has to be some sort of contract between people. Something like a word like love, which actually would have been a sort of foundational relationship between human beings, ends up being replaced by something like law. Yeah. And the idea that law is trying to do what families can do or love can do or communities can do is bonkers. You just can't do it. Yeah, this is you know, this is one of the striking consequences of the success of liberalism, I would argue, is the replacement of kind of a you could say a realm of uh, sort of in, both informal norms and relationships and its replacement always by positive law you know the you know thinking about for example my life as a teacher uh, more and more of what i do as a teacher seems to be driven by demands that are either literally come from the federal government uh, so certain rec- reporting requirements of Impact. I mean, all these kind of buzzwords in academia today. Impact the measurable kind of outcomes yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, that yeah. that you have to prove today. Not only uh, in my classroom, but of course in the work that I produce, and research, in the, in the research numbers, and so forth, as well as uh, the kinds of reporting increasingly that's even just in the bureaucracy of the universities, right? And and you could say that this is really this is the kind of almost formalization, the legalization of of what would or should be a set of relationships that exist between faculty and students or faculty and faculty that's driven more by a sense of vocation than it is by any reporting requirement that I have, right? If if my, if my the sole reason that I'm trying to create, quote-unquote, impact on my students is because I have these legal requirements, we all know it's going to be, to use a word from my ancestor, shite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Uh, it's, going to, it's, yeah. Going to, it's not going to amount to anything. Absolutely. And, uh, right. and it'll be done under under objection yes, and duress, and it will be um, really unsatisfying for, for sort of everyone involved. Whereas if it's done out of a sense of vocation, which yeah. is in some ways the the idea that I am right it's a calling it's something I do because I understand that as a teacher as a scholar this is a gift I'm given uh, I don't own it it's not mine uh, it's somehow you know if it's if it's God if it's some some power outside of you in my case it would be God gave me this gift then it is my obligation to share that gift and to share it to the fullest extent that I can, not because I have a re- reporting requirement, not because uh, this will be the, the reason or rationale for a raise or what, what you will. So what you say, all of this sort of stuff, like for me, music to my ears, I, I just love it. I just, I, I just want to say absolutely right. But then, I mean, I come from things from a, I came from a sort of hard left background. That's, that was my, uh, uh, and moved into something quite similar. But I also want to, you know, I I feel and I sort of find it very difficult to give up on the fact that liberalism also made several important gains in the 20th century Mm -hmm. that I that I find it really difficult to. Well, I won't draw back from, you know, and so how does one both acknowledge the, the the way in which there's a sort of aridity of of liberalism, but also acknowledge that the the, 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 some of the ways in which it freed things up were positive. Sure. 
Yeah. No, I mean, obviously, uh, we have come through a time where we are much readier and capable of acknowledging some deep injustices that defined uh, a sort of pre-modern world, uh, the existence, obviously, of slavery, uh, deep, deep sexism, I mean, homophobia. I guess this might be cheating a little bit, but I would say that liberalism was one way of realizing a certain aspect, I would say, of a Christian legacy, which is the acknowledgement of the inherent dignity of every human being. Uh, and it was one of the political forms uh, in, in, which this, in which this recognition was made. Um, I don't think it's the only political form through which you could achieve this kind of recognition of, of our universal human dignity. And the particular way or form in which liberalism realized this recognition has come with attendant costs that in many ways, uh, I would say, have really compromised a lot of those achievements. I'm not saying they're not, in no way am I saying that they're not worthy and we shouldn't embrace them. But they have proven to be very compromising. And I would say that today, and maybe this is potentially really controversial, that the extent to which liberalism, or let's say people who, who endorse the advances of liberalism, will tend to justify liberalism's existence as having achieved you know, greater equality of human beings in a whole sphere or range of thinking, is often used increasingly today to shroud the ways that liberalism also created a kind of new aristocracy, created a new elite and a very powerful and a very distinct new elite, and that one that we now know also to be generationally replicating itself. And the more you're uh, like, the more likely you are to be a member of that modern elite that liberalism has instituted in replacing the old elite, the more likely you are to crow about how equal, equal you are in all of these areas. Right? And so it's, it's our most elite universities, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera, that are the most conspicuously vocal about how egalitarian they are. And I find this to be an absolute- in every, in every, And as Walter Ben Michaels was very good at putting it in every area apart from class. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I find this, uh, in many ways, is kind of not just self-congratulation, but frankly, a kind of form of class self-maintenance. Uh, so I just want to be very careful about acknowledging the achievements of liberalism, but also noting that I think there's a way in which some of these are used as a kind of, in a self-serving kind of a way. It's, it, but, I mean, to put it really clearly, what people like me would probably say is, I want all of what you said, but don't you take gay marriage away. I mean that's the, that's right. sort of what that's sort of what I feel. I, I, I think you know I hear that a lot, and uh, you know on the one hand, um, you know, as, as someone who's not especially a proponent of gay marriage, I'm not sitting here arguing for taking it away. But I would say I would believe more that this was a defining issue of a civilization if we actually were just talking about marriage and how important marriage is, and we're not. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah. if anything, what we now see, what we are now seeing is that. If you are a member of the elite, you're more likely to be able to get married and hold a marriage together than you are a member of the lower classes today. And yet in no way do I see any evidence in our elite part of our society that they want to commend marriage as a positive social good that should be embraced and supported for everyone regardless of your class, regardless of your situation. Yeah. So it's a very odd situation in which marriage is in some ways the defining issue of our time, but it's gay marriage and not marriage. Yeah. So again, I find it to be at least um, a partial good that seems to be commended. And of course, the, the new elite that you describe, the, you know, the, the next chapter to that is, is Trump. I mean, that's that's what creates Trump and right. Trumpism, I right. guess, not yeah. Trump as a person, but yeah. the appeal of Trump is, is calling out that new elite, I guess. Well, I think it's, of course, you know, we could recognize that it's not just Trump, it's 
pretty much every Western liberal democracy, right? This this elite that we're describing is a global elite today, right? It's it's a it's a consequence of this globalized economic order we've created, and so in nearly every country in the Western liberal world today, what we're seeing is this thing called populism, which is a it is scrambling the political arrangements of every country, right? It's, it's uh, along lines that are kind of recognizably not just class, they are class, but it is also increasingly the way that class is divided in urban and rural settings. So Brexit is obviously a, you know, a one consequence of this, uh, how it's dividing into education, educational attainment and, and access. Um, uh, and um, as I was just saying, sort of life prospects, whether or not you're likely to sort of have a successful life versus one in which you're going to have continual catastrophes and so forth. So I, so it's very much, um, it's very much bound up with the success of liberalism now generating kind of the, the pressures that it's that 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 liberalism is coming under globally. Your book was quite an academic book. I mean, it's it, it's it, it's it's readable, but it's 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 the it's the it's the grammar of you know sort of of the academic. But it's also it's also quite an angry book about that. There is a sort of a, you know there's an ang- there is a visceral quality to the writing and to the way in which you uh, you know you approach that. Which I'm just beginning to see you sort of like coming to now with this sense of this new inequality. My target audience, you know, whenever you write a book, you kind of have to have a target audience in your mind. My target audience were my students. I was trying to think of a book I could give to my students and say, this is, this is what I think about things. Uh, and I'm gratified because a lot of my students have read the book and come in to talk with me about it. So I seem to have at least hit that target somewhat. Uh, but it was also, you're right, it was also a personal book. And it was the fruit of about probably 15 years of thinking about a lot of these things um, and finding... Uh, finding current arrangements highly unsatisfying uh, in ways that, uh, again, didn't conform to the kind of political alignment of our time. The, the, the quadrant, in a way, that that you describe, if you have on the sort of one hand, right, uh, sort of right and left on economics and right and left on culture, if you like, the quadrant that we're, we're talking about here is, as it were, left on economics and right on culture, as it were. The problem with that co- quadrant is that it's also inhabited by quite a lot of political nasties. Mm. Okay, there are, I mean, you know, so people do throw around, especially in our climate, all sorts of, you know, fascist this and that. But nonetheless, there have been quite a lot of political nasties who've inhabited that quadrant. So how do, and I would say, I'm going to say we here, because I feel that I share in that same quadrant how do we distinguish ourselves from the baddies Patrick? yeah yeah no it's i sometimes i jokingly call it it's the authoritarian quadrant right because it it uh, uh this quadrant we're talking about uh is both it wants more let's say uh more control over economics right so it's more authoritative over economic matters as well as sort of social issues uh, uh abortion so forth um and so it's it's the it's the quadrant where you see more uh, more sympathy to certain kinds of legal or social forms that uh, would would limit what we think about as this liberal liberty. So you're right; it's going to be attractive to those of a, what you know, sort of more authoritarian type of disposition. And I would say, you know, a couple of things. Um, so first of all, as I've said, this is the quadrant that, um, interestingly, has had almost no sort of you could say political attention paid to it right it it at least in in my experience in the united states maybe in england it's the quadrant where there was no political party created to 
sort of seek out its support. Um, in fact, the political parties were, you could say, largely created to sort of avoid that quadrant. Not only that, but there's a, there's a, there's another quadrant that's also it's the opposite of the quadrant we're talking about, which is the libertarian quadrant. It wants no restraints upon the economy and no restraints in the social sphere, or as few as possible. And in that quadrant, what you've seen is a massive investment, right? That's probably, uh, in terms of um, funding, at least in the United States, that's where most of the funding for think tanks, for uh, student programming, uh, the kinds of boot camps that students go to for the summer, the people who are going to go into economics programs and get uh, stipends and fellowships, most of that funding comes from that quadrant, except when you look at that quadrant in terms of how many people vote in that quadrant, it's almost entirely empty. Right? So it's massively overrepresented in the sort of political and intellectual sphere, but politically almost non-existent. The quadrant that, we're, that we were talking about, sort of the a quadrant that seeks a certain amount of let's say, uh, authority in in the various spheres of life is therefore, in in many ways, you could say, dangerously left, uh, dangerously left uh, uh, sort of untutored. And anything that involves authority needs to be tutored right needs needs a kind of development what is what is the good what is what should be the rightful limits of how we pursue the good right not not just merely let's have no no limits but what are the rightful limits and i would say uh here in particular uh that this is of course from in my mind the natural quadrant of a catholic worldview right it's it's it represents catholic social teaching in both the economic and the sort of social social questions but not big business not woke capitalism certainly not, not. Uh, and and yet this is the sphere uh, that that i think interestingly politically has been largely um, ignored uh, so this is where i think that there's a great responsibility responsibility especially among catholic thinkers to develop the appropriate ways of thinking about it. I mean, this is already well-developed in Catholic doctrine, but maybe thinking about more specifically in political matters and in, in, in political questions of our time to begin offering what I think could be a very distinct contribution in how to cultivate a well, right, well-trained, well-developed understanding of how a common good economy, a common good social sphere should rightly be ordered. Uh, and I think that's really one of the one of the uh, uh, great demands of our time right now, uh, across sort of where we see this rise of global populism. So I, I think you're right. I think it's a fraught moment, and the question really is: is there will this sort of uh, will the mainstream party simply denounce these people who occupy this quadrant as bigots and racists, and simply simply drive them further? It seems to me into sort of the the dark corners where I think very dangerous things happen? Or will it be a genuine effort, especially from our elites, elite institutions, uh, elite, elite uh, um, universities and uh, uh, media and so forth? Will be there be there a more sympathetic effort to develop what might be a, a kind of more fruitful response? The, the one movement that, that could, I think, sort of point in that direction, which I, I haven't actually read anything that you've written about, but perhaps you have, is stuff about environmentalism. So, you know, I'm thinking of people like Wendell Berry or in the States who would share, in a way, many of your assumptions. Um, people would be confused about when they read. They wouldn't work out whether he's on the right or on the left or all that sort of stuff. Um, and there's so much about modern environmentalism which is about limits, is about the need for limits, about worries about 
perpetual growth. All of that sort of language that we've got used to, that, that liberalism has championed, now we're sort of like beginning to sort of question and and and, and worry about. Now that that sort of stuff seems to point towards that quadrant. And so I wondered if you have anything to say about environmentalism, because I, I haven't actually read anything you've written yeah. about that. So it's funny, I mentioned that uh, one of the more formative influences in my thinking was Alexis de Tocqueville. The other would be Wendell Berry. Okay. Uh, I've actually read a lot of Wendell Berry. I've spent time on his front porch drinking bourbon with oh, Wendell really? Berry. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, that's yeah. just that was in brilliant. Kentucky. Yeah. It's in Kentucky. <laughs> it's in Kentucky. Uh, what yeah, a yeah. hero that man is. He's a great and man. And a beautiful poet. I yes, mean, amazing writer. Uh, I've actually written a number of essays. I have an essay on Wendell Berry as, a, as an Aristotelian. Kentuckian Aristotelian. Um, I have yeah a number of essays, and, and in the book, uh, while liberalism failed, he might be with Tocqueville the most cited uh, author that I mention. Uh, now I think Barry uh, was in, in deep and very um, both learned, but also just instinctive ways. Uh, was very much uh, is drawing on this kind of this tradition I see as sort of deeply Aristotelian, Tocquevillian, um, an emphasis upon localism, upon a kind of responsibility that arises from localism, uh, how it is we're likely to be not merely theoretically invested in the environment, but genuinely a part of nature. And that's not just, uh, that's not just, not the, that's not just a theoretical or legal involvement. That's a genuine, deep kind of engagement with the stuff of the world. So, you know, with Barry, you get commendations to learn how to do things, right, to work with your hands. I mean, things that I think we should really be doing at our universities. I mean, if you're at an elite university, you should learn how to do stuff, not just not just manipulate things with, their, with your mind. Uh, so now Barry has been extremely influential. And I would say more broadly, this has been a kind of Barry's ethos and influence, I think, has really uh, is one of the sources in the development of what I think is this very promising um, development within sort of conservative intellectual world, uh, which is, you know, I would consider myself to be a part of. But there's actually it's a growing number of um, often younger intellectuals who are really not who are really sort of abandoned or rejected the kind of Reagan era form of conservatism and really see a much more holistic understanding that, of course, includes thinking about the natural world, the environment, but how that, of course, implicates the social realm, how we think about family life, community life, and so forth. So Barry is someone I would point to almost first and foremost as, as having been a very uh, a prominent figure in my thinking. There is a sort of run for the hills type of uh, side to this form of conservatism with... Um I guess I'm thinking about Rod the Benedict ob yeah. option and this sort of stuff that, you know, that when um, Alistair McIntyre at the end of uh, After Virtue says we're waiting for, um, you know, new forms of common life and civility. And Rodre thinks this means that we sort of have to put up the barriers and develop our little city states. And that that's not your position, is it? No, I mean, at the end of my book, I do. Uh, I had just finished reading Rod's book. It had just come out. Um, Benedict Option had just come out when I was finishing my book. And um, I thought he made some very valuable recommendations. Uh, and Rod would be the first to say, in fact, he uses the phrase, I'm not saying that we should head for the hills. Uh, he's very explicit about that. But what Rod, what Rod does want to say in that book is that if you want to live a kind of countercultural life in this liberal world, right, in a world in which sort of the acidic nature of the market and the sort of this um, individualistic social sphere will really transform you if you're not aware of it and you're not um, girded against it. And if you want to, in particular, if you want to raise children 
who are going to have the sort of capabilities and resources to resist that acidic nature of the modern liberal order, you're going to have to do so in a consciously countercultural way. And that, that's really the point of his book, I think, is that you're going to need to, the sort of strength of both family and community resources to foster the kind of human beings who are prepared to live in some ways in opposition to the nature of the modern liberal order, as well as be witnesses, right? Uh, not to live apart from it, but within the bosom of this of, of this new order, of this existing order, uh, to live as a kind of witness, as a kind of countercultural witness uh, to this to this time and place. So I th- I think there's a very activist side to this kind of an argument. So I, I do sympathize with the argument that there need to be the development of the kind of resources and and, uh, and capabilities to live distinctly uh, and to think distinctly. But it can't be a part. Uh, there is no part because if because if in fact this is a kind of monolithic and homogenous order, it will sort of seek you out. Right, right. Uh, it won't leave you alone. But more than that, I, I think it would be uh, it would be against the idea of vocation. It would be the idea against the idea of gift to withhold what one thinks is genuinely good from from uh, a world that it seems to me is deeply broken and in need of a very different way of thinking. Of course, the powerful. The sort of powerful way of looking at the world, which embodies so many of these non-liberal forms of togetherness, could be Islam. I mean, you know, I'm I'm always I'm always amazed that conservatives have have it in for Islam as much as they do, because actually Islam embodies a lot of the things I would have thought that they would admire. Yeah, no, it's, it is striking right now that in the Western world you have this interesting alignment between kind of the progressive left and Islam. Uh, and if there's any thinker that's been aware of how probably unstable this is, it's Michel Houellebecq, uh, his novels, uh, particularly his novel Submission, uh, which describes a world in which the sort of the woke left eventually sort of submits to the rise of Islam. Um, you know, I, I it's I think it's clearly the case that Islam, at least in its self, you know, by one of one of its most fundamental self understandings, is not liberal, right? And in many ways, you could say Islam has taken good advantage of a liberal society that's very tolerant, um, and occupies a, a space that, in in some ways, is not dissimilar to how liberalism used to look at Catholics, right? That that we can tolerate you, but we also expect you to become liberal. Now, in the case of Catholics, Catholics kind of did become liberal. Um, you know, some some people will say, well, not everyone, not every Catholic, uh, but it, it it did accommodate itself extensively to sort of liberal modernity. Vatican yeah, II. Vatican II would be uh, one one place that people would look at. Now, again, there's interesting contestation going on right now in the Catholic world. Did was Vatican II actually a sort of uh, capitulation, sort of capitulation yeah. or yeah. or sort of um, sort of agreement to work uh, within the liberal understanding, and you know my own view would be that not not entirely so. Um, that it always was keeping a keeping liberalism at arm's length, but I think that there is a kind of let's say unstated expectation among modern liberals that Islam will eventually sort of become liberal. Like if 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 you know enough. Muslims are sort of admitted into various European capitals. The expectation is that over time they'll become more liberal. And I think one of the things we're seeing right now in those European countries is that this doesn't seem to be the case, or at least not entirely the case. And so there are, I think, really interesting questions going into the future 
of whether or not uh, you know the, un, the expectations and assumptions of the liberal order are actually going to apply when it comes to Islam. You've been in the UK for a few months on sabbatical or teaching over no, here. Teaching, teaching, yeah, teaching, yeah, teaching our here. students, yeah. <clears throat> and you haven't been to London much before, so this has been your first real exposure to London. But what do you make of our politics and what's going on over here? Well, it's been an interesting time, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, and we're living right off of Trafalgar Square, so I think I've uh, been exposed to every protest <laughs> uh, that's taken place since August. Uh, you can't you can't sleep at night with all of the drum beating going on. Um, well, you know, I what we've been talking about here, it seems to be uh, in many ways, without wanting to reduce England to the same phenomenon, it does seem to me. Uh, that that the dislocations and instability right now in British politics reflect a lot of these same um, these same underlying currents, right? You have, I mean, think about it: the Tories, right, the Conservatives, which was sort of historically the party of the elite, the party of the aristocracy, you know, sort of more sympathetic with the wealthy, the well-established. It's becoming the working class party, right? You have, yeah. you know, I mean, they're going to make they're likely to make major inroads into what have been historically uh, uh, labor labor parts of Northern England, uh, whereas labor is becoming, you know, and this is where Corbyn's trying to be cagey, but uh, labor is becoming increasingly the urban party, becoming the, the party of London and, and, and the big cities. Uh, um, uh, so, you know, you're seeing the scrambling going on. Uh, I was really struck, uh, I, one of the books I taught this semester was uh, Burke's uh, Reflections on the Revolution in France. And there was a section in that book that I had read before but hadn't leapt out at me as you know these things tend to do and it was all about how a how dangerous how dangerous Burke believed it was if a kind of country became dominated by sort of financial speculators and how the sort of average or working man um, would quickly find him or herself completely disoriented but in such a world. Uh, and that this disorientation would likely give rise to a kind of great political divide that would, especially, he said, develop between those who live in more urban areas and those who live in more rural areas. And it's striking to read this, exactly you know, here in twenty. Happening. It's exactly what's happening. So, um, so I think Burke was uh, Burke was spot on. And what's, it's worse what's, here because the city of London is just in terms of in terms of the sort of how much it accounts for our GDP and you know that it, it's so out of proportion. Yeah. Yeah. to the rest of the wealth-generating aspects of the yeah. country. So what's what's really interesting is that what Burke says is that you, the conservatives in the country are going to become, you know, will be most likely to be that working class because they're going to want stability. They're going to want tomorrow to look a lot like today, which will look a lot like yesterday. And that describes, I think, in some ways what's happened with Brexit. And so in some ways you could say it's very unnatural for the conservative party, the Tory party, to become the working class party. But what Burke would sort of have predicted is that in such a world, this would become the conservative sort of constituency. So maybe in some ways it took us, what, 200-something years. And the Labour Party is going to become more and more like that elite party of liberals. I, uh, it would seem, you know, again, there's there's a, obviously a, an electoral desire right now to, to remain a little bit uh, cagey about whether or not it's still the working class party or the urban party. But you would expect a realignment to continue where labor will have this name that no longer reflects its actual electorate, right? It will become the, the party of the suburbs, the party of the urban core, uh, and then the party of some of the periphery that, that wants to remain in Europe, Ireland, uh, and so forth. Uh, so I, I, in some ways, it's a very 
unusual time. In other ways, you know, it seems to be almost uh, presciently or prophetically uh, coming uh, coming into being what was seen even 200 years ago by some of Britain's most most famous thinkers. When I was on the left, I don't even know. I, I still find it difficult to talk in past tense, but I still think of myself as on the left. But I'm on a journey. When I was on the left, what was absolutely crucial was an alliance between as it were, the university educated and the working class. That was, that was where the, the left had its power. And if those two could be in alliance with each other, then the left was going to win. But that alliance is, is almost completely split and gone. And, and, and that's how the left has lost its, you know, the old left has lost its power. And a new, you know, for me, it's a question of what new forms of social justice or whatever that there's language that we used to use how that can now become a part of the sort of new grammar of politics and that's you know and that may well be to appeal back to older forms of of political life in which these things were caught yeah it's uh it's really striking how exactly what you described the the, the the previous alliance that had existed, especially between sort of the usually more philosophically left university faculty and the working class, has not only been split apart, but now you could say is almost exactly the opposite, in which those who occupy the spaces of the university and the institutions that are populated by the university educated have sort of positive disdain toward the working class yeah. today. Real, yeah. real condescension toward the deplorables. Them. The deplorables, and and you know that you you these, this is revealed sometimes inadvertently in in certain things that will be said, which which you will hear said quite explicitly inside the faculty sort of dining room, uh, but aren't supposed to say it in in polite company. Uh, this was again this prophetically predicted in many ways by one of my, my other favorite thinkers was Christopher Lash uh, back in the 1990s. Oh, culture of narcissism. Yeah, yeah. But in particular, his book, The Revolt of the Elites, in which he described this coming apart of this kind of educational cultural elite and its growing disdain for sort of the working class. Uh, so this was already kind of coming into being. And I would say, you know, we're talking about our, our journeys, our intellectual journeys. This was definitely a part of my own intellectual journey. You know, having taught at elite institutions like uh, Princeton, Georgetown, before going to Notre Dame, and seeing this um, growing disdain that was expressed by my colleagues toward kind of the people I grew up with, and and uh, uh, and also the religion of my of my childhood, a kind of disdain for anyone who has such backwards and, and superstitious views. Uh, I think it's um, let's put it you know again to, to appeal to Burke. It's always extremely dangerous uh, when the elite of a society um, have a self understanding of themselves that's. Um, sees themselves as fundamentally in opposition to sort of the ordinary people. You know, I think that 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 creates a genuinely deeply dangerous political moment. Uh, and it's not just, of course, dangerous from the sort of standpoint, oh, we might, you know, sort of have a you know, revolutionary moment or, or something like that. But, uh, but I think this is a moment in which you're likely to see a much, the potential of a kind of radicalized working class movement, which gets us back to what we were talking about earlier. From whence is going to come... Yeah the kind of tutoring of what will become, be more likely to be the growing anger and resentment of, a, of, of people who think that they are not only now deprived of the sort of the advantages of living life well, that seems to be increasingly the purview of the elite, but are resented by those people who are winning, 
who are condescended to by those who are winning. I think this is a toxic political mixture. And if my people who occupy the universities don't come to realize this, and I think, frankly, start to think and act better about these things, I think they're going to be in very serious trouble politically, but otherwise. I mean, I think there's going to be the genuine possibility of a very unpleasant political movement that will make what's happening today look mild by comparison. That's revolutionary talk, Patrick. I'm just, I'm speaking as a diagnostician. Yeah, no, but I mean, what you're diagnosing is revolution, isn't it? Well, it's some form of it, yes. Yeah. Uh, What are the forms of resistance to that? What are the forms of hope in it? Where are the seeds of hope in this? You talked about Rubio before, someone you... trying to bring things together. I don't know who the people are that you admire politically. Well, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say I admire Rube. I actually like to to speech quite a bit. I I do think, uh, you know, he's trying to figure out where he can position himself. You know, he's kind of looking where the market is right now. Um, uh, But, no, I think there's also genuine interest in these developments. Um, But... I say this as someone who's spent his his adult life in the universities and uh, in many ways who feels extremely privileged and blessed to be in universities. But I think if there's anything I'm going to devote my remaining years to, at least as far as I can see, it would be to trying to cultivate within my own institutions the greater ability, capacity, and willingness to use our tremendous benefit resources, uh, knowledge, et cetera, to make life better for those who are not benefiting from our institutions. Right. So the people who are not benefiting from our institutions are typically people from sort of the lower middle class, you know, working Belt, class, yeah. right? Rust Belt, I mean, the place where I live today. So we take a lot of pride in what we do for launching our students to become wonderful, have wonderful careers, often very careers that are that are defined by forms of social justice. Also, lots of people go into finance and make a lot of money and maybe donate back to the university. I mean, there are lots of ways that, that there, there are self-serving ways that uh, our system works, but there are also genuinely good people that we produce. But at the same time, it's a very narrow bandwidth that we're serving. What would it be for us to begin to think, for example, I mean, I, I've thought... You know, like a place like Notre Dame, a Catholic university, what if we were to say, you know, if you go out and get a career in finance, we're not going to forgive your student debt. You're going to pay it all back. But if you go get a career as a teacher or as a policeman or a fireman, uh, priest, you know, we could name the career social worker, you're going to get a full ride. You're not going to to pay a penny to come here. In other words, if we, if we signaled that there are certain kinds of vocations, certain things that you could do that would contribute not just to the financial capitals where most of our students end up, but to the sort of everyday life, kind of being the stewards or trustees of lots of different communities in the United States and outside the United States. Shouldn't we say that there's a real value to that? And I don't think we do that today. I think we signal something very different. Patrick Janine, well, I'm delighted you didn't become a lawyer. <laughs> Thank you very much <laughs> so for talking I. to me. Absolutely, my Thank pleasure. You, Thank you for listening to this episode of Confessions with me, Giles Fraser. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate and review it. And do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'll be joined by another guest next week for another episode of Soul Bearing. And I do hope you'll tune in then. And do check out the website, unheard.com. Confessions.